The remarkable thing is that home prices in the United States from 1890 to 1990, that's 100 years, if corrected for inflation, showed virtually no appreciation. Well, it was less than a half a percent a year. That's not an exciting investment opportunity. Welcome to episode 12 of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti. I think you're going to enjoy this episode because it features an interview with someone who you're likely to recognize. Robert Schiller is a professor of economics and finance at Yale University and the author of several best-selling books, the most famous of which is Irrational Exuberance, which was first published in March of 2000. Now, in this book, Professor Schiller explained why he felt the U.S. stock market, which had recently enjoyed years of lofty returns, was in bubble territory. And sure enough, almost immediately after the book hit the shelves, the dot-com bubble burst and the U.S. suffered a bear market that lasted until 2003. Now, you might also recognize Professor Schiller's name in association with something called the Schiller-Cape Ratio. This is a formula designed to measure whether stocks in a particular sector or country are overvalued or undervalued based on their earnings over the previous 10 years. It's commonly used to estimate the future returns of stocks, and as these measures go, it's one of the more reliable. A good deal of Professor Schiller's research is also focused on the housing market, and he is the co-creator of the widely followed S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Indexes, which track housing prices in major U.S. cities. In 2013, Professor Schiller was awarded the Nobel Prize for Economics for his, quote, pioneering contributions to financial market volatility and the dynamics of asset prices. In October, BMO launched a new ETF based on the CAPE ratio that I just described, and Professor Schiller was in Toronto for the launch. I was privileged to have an opportunity to sit down and speak with him about his work and his ideas. I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Professor Robert Schiller of Yale University, best-selling author and Nobel laureate. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, I'd like to start with uh, a big question. You shared the Nobel Prize in 2013 with Eugene Fama, who is considered the father of the efficient market hypothesis. And that's kind of an interesting irony, if you will, because your work all through your career is focused on market inefficiencies. So in one interview, though, I remember reading that you had said that you and Fama, quote, differed more in rhetoric and emphasis than on fundamental beliefs. So I wanted to ask you to just begin by discussing how efficient you believe markets to really be. The efficient market hypothesis, which was named by Eugene Fama, although the hypothesis goes back further in time, this hypothesis is a half-truth. There's different ways of saying our markets are efficient. Uh, The good side is it's not easy to make 10% excess return a year, okay? Why isn't it? It's because you're competing against other people who are, in many cases, smart and trying very hard. That's the positive side of efficiency. You have to warn young people not to imagine that that's easy to do. But the other side is, let's talk about uh, what drives national stock markets. Uh, Efficient markets hypothesis suggests that it's some logical reaction to genuine news about fundamentals. And there's where it goes wrong. I think 
most of the fluctuations in aggregate stock markets are garbage. It's storytelling and psychology. Now, um, I wonder how much that affects the actual individual investor's plight. Um, one of the things that I've often encountered uh, as I've recommended an indexing strategy uh, to people over the years is people have responded by saying, an indexing strategy implies that you believe in almost perfectly efficient markets because if there were inefficiencies in the markets, we could exploit them in a way that index investors cannot do. But I've always argued that as long as you, you know, diversify your risks and keep your costs low and you have a disciplined strategy to eliminate all of the biggest behavioral difficulties with investing, you can do just fine. So can you comment on how much an efficient market is important uh, to an indexing strategy? Well, I think there is a lot. I've done index investing myself for much of my life. Uh, but on the other hand, we do also have other institutions that manage investments. For example, banks. <laughs> when you're investing in a bank or, or an index of bank stocks, is that an index strategy or not? Because you're, the banks are run by managers of the bank's investment. And uh, I think that it, there is something to be said for banks. They, they develop a professional expertise, and uh, that's useful. So it's nothing. It's not an all-or-nothing uh, thing. Uh, ultimately, index strategies depend on there being somebody who is watching carefully, whether it's somebody in the bank or whether it's uh, some other investors who are making prices approximately right. It's all... It's, unfortunately, it's, it's a, a gray area. I think that investing, index investing is generally appropriate for most investors who don't want to spend a lot of time, uh, maybe don't have confidence that they will be the winner. Uh, but that doesn't mean it is uh, that picking stocks is out the window. I think it's still an important function and it will make some people very successful. Now, one of the uh, things you've known, been known for over your career is making a couple of very good calls. Um, most obviously, I would say your book, uh, Irrational Exuberance, first appeared, the first edition in March of 2000, which coincided almost perfectly with the uh, bursting of the dot-com bubble. And you were also among one of the strongest voices um, warning about the U.S. housing bubble in the mid-2000s, and that turned out to be extremely prescient as well. So how do you define a bubble, and what are the warning signs that you look for? Well, one warning sign is statistical that I talk about in my book, Irrational Exuberance, and elsewhere, uh, which is uh, a price-earnings ratio that I call, the, and my colleague Campbell call, the CAPE ratio, cyclically adjusted price-earnings ratio. But there's also an assessment of the story of the time and the zeitgeist, as some people say, which is the spirit of the times. And... When I first published my first edition of Irrational Exuberance in 2000, I very distinctly remember talking to my editor at the Princeton University Press, can you rush this one into print? Because normally university presses take a year. Uh, and so they did rush it into print. And thank goodness we did that because otherwise my book would have come out after the correction in the market. So... I had a feeling based on what people were saying, uh, comparing it with what people were saying in other episodes like 1929, that led me to think that uh, 
But it was intuitive and nothing that I could prove. I thought a correction was possible, and indeed it turned out to be what actually happened. What were the kinds of things that, that people were saying that, uh, that you noticed? Well, there was the dot-com store in, in, in 1999-2000. Dot-com stocks were the new internet stocks. They were brand new because the internet was only a little over five years old at that time. Uh, and now there was a, a theory that came up that uh, you should buy companies that had no earnings history because uh, earnings is for suckers or losers. A uh, company wants to grab market share early with the internet revolution. So that left uh, a lost mooring in the market. And I thought that the, the talk was turning negative about, um, uh, subtly, it was... It's, it's, it was a judgment call. I, in fact, I told my editor I wanted my book rushed into press. I didn't go public with a sense, such a sense of urgency. Then in uh, the second time, uh, the 2000 peak of the market, I, I was listening to the talk about home prices and about defaulting on mortgages. Uh, and I thought that there could be an uh, unusual correction in the housing market. I saw home prices in the United States going up in some cities at an amazing rate. It never happened before like that, not to that extreme. So I thought that this is something that will eventually catch people's attention and cause a major correction. Now, you talked about the danger of uh, you know, having your book come out after the bubble had already <laughs> yeah. burst. Anybody can call a bubble after it's burst, but there's an equal danger, in many ways sometimes a, a greater danger, of calling a bubble much too early. And I think one example, a relevant example of that is the famous comment about irrational exuberance, which right. was made by Alan Greenspan in 1996, right. more than three years before the bubble burst. So if you'd gotten out... When he first made that comment, you would have missed out on three years yeah. of enormous returns. So um, can you talk a little bit about the difficulty of using this kind of information effectively? How does it inform your investing decisions and not simply encourage you to get out of the market and face that enormous opportunity cost? You know, I testified before the Federal Open Market Committee with Alan Greenspan three days before he made that statement. And in that testimony, I said I was worried about the stock market, but I didn't say the end is near. And in fact, I didn't pull out myself from the stock market. So the problem is that it's hard to judge when the end is coming. Uh, I think that's essential. It's not because markets are efficient. It's because the behavior of individuals trying to outsmart each other is hard to predict. It's like trying to predict uh, a game, a sports event, and uh, they're trying to outsmart each other. They're both pulling in different directions. I called it the greatest error in the history of economic thought to imagine that the difficulty in predicting the market is evidence that the market is right. Okay? It can be d difficult to predict and be wrong. Now, you made a reference a moment ago to the CAPE ratio. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit um, about that, if you could explain uh, what it is for listeners who may not be aware of it. Maybe people will have uh, be familiar with the price-to-earnings ratio. But can you right. talk a little bit about how you came up with the CAPE ratio and how it was designed to be an improvement over a traditional PE ratio? The traditional PE ratio should properly be called price-to-one-year earnings ratio. Where did one year come in? Well, it happens to be astronomical. 
it takes one year for the Earth to go around the sun. At least the thing isn't seasonal. If you average earnings over a year, at least you don't have seasonal problems. But beyond that, what's so natural about a year? The problem is that a company or a country can have some very bad years, even years of negative earnings, in which case the price earnings ratio would come out negative, which is absurd. So I, I thought, and my colleague John Campbell and I thought, that there's nothing special about one year. It's just nobody's thinking about what the optimal interval is. So we, we tried various intervals, and we found that price to 10-year earnings works better. Now, this didn't sound like a very popular idea because it's almost like economic history. 10-year average earnings? That sounds uh, crazy to some people. Uh, they, they tend to want uh, investment advisors who are really up to date. <laughs> Look at what's happening right now. It ties in with what you just read in the newspaper. But we, we were thinking that, in fact, <clears throat> the trajectory of companies is long and slow as measured by the earning. A company that was worth a lot 10 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago is probably still worth a lot. So the idea of just looking at <clears throat> one year earning, which is heavily influenced by the business cycle, is just a mistake. And uh, I think everybody should be using the CAPE ratio and scrap the old-fashioned, what we, we call the traditional price earnings ratio. Well, speaking of that, the uh, a few years ago, Vanguard did a study where it looked at 15 different methods that people commonly use to forecast future stock returns. And you've probably seen the study, but you'd be pleased to know that the Shiller-Cape ratio was uh, found to be the best of those 15. Um, but the other side of that story is that it still only explained about 43% of subsequent mm -hmm. returns. So there's still a very large part of majority that remains unexplained. So I wanted to ask you again about how you can use numbers like these, ratios like these, to inform your investment decision when it's really only telling a small part of the story. And I'll, I'll just comment on another um, interview that you had done earlier where you'd said, for example, that I think that it makes common sense to lean away from current high Cape countries and toward low Cape regions. I just don't have a precise formula for doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, if you don't have a precise formula for doing it, do you need to kind of come up with a process um, that you can adhere to, or are you end up sort of operating on hunches and suspicions? Well, I've been working with Barclays Bank to develop products that involve formulaic uh, reactions to the CAPE ratio. So we have sector indexes that allocate between sectors, like consumer discretionary versus... Uh, industrials or uh, other sectors uh, based on the CAPE ratio. But we're, uh, we also look at momentum. And uh, it's a uh, strategy that we have optimized. It does work well, ha has worked well historically. Uh, for going between countries, that's something that we haven't uh, finalized yet. I think one has to be careful in doing that because it, international comparisons can be difficult. There are also exchange rate movements between currencies that have an effect. Also with individual stocks, we now have uh, another formulaic way that we find works uh, going through. Uh, we can't actually compute the CAPE ratio for many stocks because the company hasn't been around for 10 years. So 
we have to use a, uh, uh, a uh, sample of stocks biased toward old companies. But yeah, I think uh, rules are, are possible. And, and I've uh, done work with Barclays Bank and other uh, participants to try to uh, optimize the, our way of doing that. That's one of the ways that, that an indexing um, approach can help sort of put those ideas into practice, right? Because for the individual investor to make any of those decisions is virtually impossible. So to have a, an index methodology that they can buy into at a reasonable cost allows them access to those strategies. Well, I think, uh, yeah, again, it depends on how much time you want to put in. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that, I think it's actually uh, good that people do involve themselves in in decisions involving uh, not just sectors, but even individual stocks, because it, uh, it helps increase their intelligence about the economy. One thing about a successful capitalist economy is that there are many people watching. Uh, and if they gain some pleasure out of following individual stocks, I think that's, that's good. There's good. We should have some such people. But for most people, yeah, but they're not going to uh, devote the time and energy to do that right. And they might just churn their portfolio too much and incur transactions costs that will deplete their ultimate long-term return. Now, we alluded to this a little bit earlier, but between uh, 2003 and 2005, you were quite outspoken about the dangers of the housing bubble in the U.S. and it turned out to be dead on. Um, now, as you may know, a number of Canadian cities are right now experiencing a pretty long run-up in housing prices. Uh, and there are many Canadians, I think, who believe that buying a house is a better investment than a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds. So how would you respond to that idea? What would you say to those investors? I can easily imagine why they think it has been a better investment than stocks and bonds because it has been so for the past five, especially maybe 10, 20 years. But it hasn't always been that. Now, I don't have long, I have data on home prices for the United States going back to 1890. Uh, Terranet and other uh, sources in Canada have indices, but not going back that far. So we don't even know what Canadian home prices have done. I'll bet it's similar on the, whole, on the whole overall to what we see in the US. The remarkable thing is that home prices in the United States from 1890 to 1990, that's 100 years, if corrected for inflation, show virtually no appreciation. Well, it was less than a half a percent a year. That's not an exciting investment opportunity. On top of that, you have to pay property taxes, you have to do maintenance, you have to replace the roof, and you have headaches, worries. So for it seems like for the long span of US history, uh, investing in housing was not a great investment. People think that it will be a great investment, maybe, because they think land is scarce and they can't make any more of it and population is growing. But that's such a slow effect. It's not exciting as an investment. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's offset by depreciation of homes. So as a whole, I think homes should be purchased for people who want a home, okay? And then their, their portfolio should be diversified around the world. If you invest in a bigger home than you like, thinking it's an investment, or invest in two or three homes, as many people do, 
you're probably undiversified geographically. You're, you're, uh, and you're, you, uh, doing that in Canada right now in some of the major cities would really scare me because I look at a f plot of home prices in these Canadian cities and it looks, <laughs> it looks, it's getting a little crazy. Why should Canadian home prices be so outperforming? It's not just Canada, it's also Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Taipei, lots of, there are certain places in the world that are going through housing booms right now. And I wouldn't invest in those places unless I wanted a house there. Now, a lot of your work has focused on how asset prices are informed by behavior as opposed to, say, intrinsic valuation. And I think that it's fair to say buying a home is fraught with emotion in many ways, more so than buying stocks or bonds or other assets. So, you know, people, they create narratives, they rationalize about why they're buying a home and why, you know, putting $100,000 into renovation is, a, is an investment rather than a lifestyle expense. So can you talk a little bit about the ways the, the sort of those key principles of behavioral finance come into buying a home? Definitely buying a home is an emotional decision. Uh, the preference to own a home goes back to our ancient his territorial instincts that's shared not only by primitive people, but by animals. When you see a bird up in the tree singing, what's that bird saying? He is probably a he who sings, is singing, this is my territory. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we, we have to consider that we might not be making the best investments. The idea that a home is the best investment is just not supported by the data. It's, it's supported by a short-run reaction to home prices and a uh, kind of a wishful thinking bias. So I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the current environment. Um, right now, we're enjoying, you know, a very long period of not only high returns, but pretty consistent ones. We've seen very little volatility in the market. In the stock market. In the stock market. Um, and a fair bit of complacency, I think, among investors. There's a lot of people, certainly younger investors that I've spoken to who've only been in the market for a few years, seem blissfully unaware that markets are not always this kind. Yeah. Um, now, a few years ago, you dubbed the period since the 2009 recovery as uh, the new normal boom, right. potentially the new normal bubble, depending on how it plays out. Um, how has your assessment changed since you coined that term? Well, it's only been a, a couple of years. Uh, and what, the biggest change in the United States was Donald J. Trump. <laughs> that was a, a, a monumental change because we have someone who isn't a politician and who believes in rough talk, Im, believes in impulsive talk, uh, doesn't read history but thinks he knows. Uh, so we have a, a, a real uh, issue with this man. I'm hopeful he'll do well. I would like him to do well. I'm ready to give him some advice if he asks me, but he doesn't ask me. What would be the advice that you'd give him? Do nothing. <laughs> okay. So um, you, you talked a few times in the last few months about your concerns that the current boom might end you know, in a relatively dramatic crash, but you've always been careful with your words and you don't make 
bold forecasts. Um, one of the quotes that jumped out me from a, a recent uh, talk that you did where you, you said, this isn't a forecast, it's just a worry. Right, right. So how as an investor do you deal with worries while resisting the urge to make big forecasts and big moves with your portfolio? Well, yeah, the problem, <laughs> this is a psychological question, I think. It's a question of, of uh, there's a problem that investors have of overconfidence. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a known human trait. Most of us think we're above average, and we get some zest for living by playing that out and trying to do better than others. Uh, but I have to correct, for, I know that I have that, every one of us has a tendency to that. Well, some people have inferiority complexes, but most of us have the opposite problem. Uh, and so there's a, t a tendency to, to trade too much and to play games that are not simple. Uh, the, the, the diversification rule is simple common sense. Uh, it's not fun and exciting and it doesn't reward your ego so much. So these are issues that we have to uh, face. Yeah, sometimes the uh, you know the, the the best investment advice is to do things that are boring, right? Diversify, stay the course, keep costs low, try yeah, and, to resist and those and stories. keep rebalancing your portfolio. When something goes up, maybe you have too much of it now, so sell some of it and put it somewhere else. That that'll tend to partially protect you from bubbles. Right, it's easier said than done, but it's great advice. So thanks very much, Professor Scheller, for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's time once again for another segment of Bad Investment Advice. Where we search high and low to bring you ideas designed to torpedo your portfolio. Now, one of the most basic ideas in investing is that risk and reward are two sides of the same coin. In order to achieve higher returns over the long term, you have to accept more volatility and the possibility of greater losses in the short run. Yet, as investors, we seem to have a ravenous appetite for strategies that promise high returns without all of those unpleasant side effects. I recently came across a new book that continues this long tradition. It's called Slash Your Retirement Risk by Chris Cook, who runs a wealth management firm in Dayton, Ohio. The book begins by making a claim that has become quite common. Quote, traditional buy and hold investment strategies that emphasize return on your investments don't work anymore. Close quote. Then he goes on to include some alarmist claims such as, without a shift in your approach to investing and saving, you very likely could run out of money in your lifetime, or relying on typical investing approaches can easily result in financial disaster in the future. Now to save us from this disaster, the author introduces a strategy that he calls the new ROI. And here the letters don't stand for return on investment, as they usually do, but rather reliability of income. The goal of this strategy, he writes, quote, is to maximize the equity portion of your portfolio to capitalize on market upsides while protecting against dramatic losses on the downside. So there it is right away, the promise of market-like returns without market-like risk. Now, the author emphasizes that the new ROI is not based on, quote, promoting exotic investments, fleeing to gold bars, or touting expensive planning. Now, I have to admit that line really jumped out at me. I don't know how financial planning gets lumped in with exotic investments and hoarding gold, but there you go. 
In any case, here's how the new ROI strategy works. It's designed to get you out of the market before a moderate correction turns into a devastating loss, and then get you back in before the recovery is complete. So specifically, you start with a portfolio of equally weighted holdings in 11 economic sectors. So this is healthcare, utilities, real estate, financials, and so on. And he suggests just doing this with 11 low-cost ETFs. You stay invested until the S&P 500 declines by 10%. And as soon as it hits that threshold, you sell all your equities and you move to bonds. Then you wait for the S&P 500 to recover by 15%, at which point you buy back the equities. So the idea is to limit your losses during a major drawdown, like the ones that followed the bursting of the tech bubble in 2000 and the financial crisis of 2008-09. Now, it is important to recognize, you know, there's no question that major drawdowns can devastate portfolios, and it can take a lot longer uh, to recover from those losses than many people realize. The math here is actually pretty interesting. So if your portfolio falls by 10%, you actually need more than a 10% recovery to get back to even. So think about it. Imagine you have $100 and you lose 10%, you'd be left with $90. If that $90 grows by 10%, you'd only have $99. So to get back to even, you actually need an 11% recovery. And with larger drawdowns, this asymmetry gets even more dramatic. You know, to recover from a 20% loss, you need a 25% return. And to recoup the losses of a 50% decline, which was possible in the 0809 crisis, your portfolio needs to grow by 100%. You know, it needs to double over that period. So it's easy to see why a strategy promising to sidestep these devastating losses is so seductive. But as I read this book right away, I was turned off by the author's, quote, typical examples of just how badly things can go when investors use traditional strategies. So here's one of them. Our first example is Lou, who retires at age 60 at the end of 1999. Lou has $500,000 invested in a portfolio of half stocks and half bonds. And after supposedly doing his homework, he determines that he can withdraw 6.5% of his portfolio annually. In another example, it's January 2008, and Peter and Alice are planning to retire in one year, and they are 100% invested in an S&P 500 index fund, which they think is a, quote, secure investment, because, quote, that's what everyone, including their financial advisor, told them. Well, as you can imagine, Lou, Peter, and Alice all end up with their retirement dreams crushed. And of course, their sad stories could have had happy endings if only they had followed the new ROI strategy and pulled all of their money out of the stock market before the big losses of the dot-com crash and the financial crisis, and then put it all back in as the markets recovered. But the problem is here, and I think if you're a financial planner, you would recognize these right away. These are classic straw man arguments. The author's trying to argue that traditional investment strategies no longer work, but neither of these scenarios represent what a traditional financial planner would recommend. In the first example, Lou plans to withdraw 6.5% of his portfolio every year, which most planners would argue is an unsustainable rate to begin with, especially if he retires somewhat early at the age of 60 rather than 65. Nor would a traditional planner advise you to invest 100% of your portfolio in the S&P 500 one year before retirement, as Peter and Alice did. And certainly no one would call that a secure investment if they were a respectable planner following a truly traditional strategy. 
Now, Lou, Peter, and Alice could have all enjoyed a comfortable retirement using a traditional investment strategy as long as they had some prudent planning that would have reduced their investment risk and made their spending more sustainable. But maybe that's just my bias of me touting expensive planning. But let's take a look at the strategy itself and the evidence behind it. Now remember, the idea is that you are to sell your entire equity portfolio as soon as the S&P 500 falls by 10%. You move the money to bonds, and as soon as the market recovers by 15%, you buy back in. The author says that this formula is based on long-term research, and he uses terms like scientifically proven and optimal. But the book actually only provides back-tested performance going to 1994. That is hardly long-term. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt for now. Over those 22 years since 1994, the new ROI strategy would have been triggered five times. There would have been five instances where a 10% drop would have triggered you to sell off your equities. And had you employed the strategy to the letter all five times, you would have handily beaten a traditional buy-and-hold portfolio. But I think it's important to note that on three of those five occasions, this was in 1998, 2010, and 2011, you would actually have been much better off simply staying invested in equities rather than selling after the 10% drop and buying back in after the 15% recovery. It was only in the other two cases, which were the big ones, the dot-com crash of 2000 and the meltdown of 2008, where the strategy would have worked brilliantly, saving you from huge losses while even logging some modest gains as you sat in bonds. Now, if you're not already skeptical, the author skewers his own argument later in the book when he warns investors to strictly adhere to his rules. The 10% decline and the 15% recovery thresholds, they're not rough guidelines, they're set in stone. So if the market falls 9%, you don't sell. It has to be 10. And if you sell, you can't buy back in after a 10% or 12% recovery. You have to wait until the 15% figure. Quote, failing to stick to the new ROI rules completely, the author warns, can potentially exact a huge financial toll on a portfolio. He even offers an example here. He says that if you had bought back into the market after a 10% rebound following the dot-com crash, instead of waiting for the full 15% recovery, you actually would have lost money over that period. The strategy only worked if you were completely out of the market for a period of about 30 months. So let's review all of this for a second. So the strategy was back-tested over just 22 years, which is a very short period in stock market history. It failed three times out of five, and when it succeeded, it was only if you employed it using very specific thresholds. And we're told that these thresholds are mathematically and robust and scientifically proven, but there's nowhere near enough data to make claims like that. I would like to know, how would the new ROI strategy have worked if you employed it after every 10% decline since 1926, which was the first year that we have high-quality stock market data? Why was the backtesting started in 1994 and not, say, 1987? How would it have worked if you had based it on a 9% decline and a 12% recovery, or using some other similar threshold? Would it have worked in other countries or only in the U.S.? Without that kind of rigorous testing, the new ROI looks like nothing more than data mining. Anyone can look backwards and identify a strategy that would have worked during the last two bear markets, but there's no convincing evidence here that these strategies will work during the next two. 
Imagine if I told you that the couch potato strategy only worked if you followed my suggested asset allocations exactly, and that you rebalanced every January with no exceptions. If you followed these rules, you would succeed as an investor, but if you deviated from them even slightly, your portfolio would blow up. Even if the new ROI strategy turns out to work as well in the future as its backtests suggest, let's get real here. No one follows any quantitative strategy perfectly over 20 plus years, especially if that requires the investor to check the level of the S&P 500 every month and then make a huge decision about whether to be 100% in or 100% out of the market. Now, fortunately, to be a successful investor, you don't need to follow a strict, unwavering formula. All you need to do is save diligently, diversify broadly, keep your costs low, and avoid the big behavioral mistakes that come from greed, fear, and not having a plan. Investors really need to let go of the idea that it's possible to capture the upside of stock market returns without also accepting the possibility of devastating losses. The only way to reliably reduce the risk of losses in your portfolio is to include high-quality government bonds or GICs or cash. By doing this, you will also lower the expected return of your portfolio over the long term, but that is the price of safety. Ken Fisher, who's the veteran money manager and an author of many best-selling books, wrote, quote, to my knowledge, no one has ever achieved market-like returns without some market-like downside. If you want to achieve something close to stock's long-term average, you must accept downside volatility. No way around that, close quote. We would all love to get out of the market before the next crash and back in before the recovery, but there is no reliable way to do this. Anyone suggesting that you abandon buy and hold investing in favor of a magic formula is peddling bad investment advice. We're going to wrap up this episode with another installment of Ask the Spud, where we answer investing questions from listeners and blog readers. Joining me in the studio, as always, is my colleague, Amanda DL. Amanda, what is today's question? So today's question is from a listener named Abe, who wants to learn more about currency hedging. Abe writes, would you please talk about whether currency hedged index funds are a wise solution for someone who wants to take part in the U.S. market, and how this might change depending on the current strength of the Canadian dollar? Thanks for the question, Abe. Let's begin by reviewing what currency hedging is and why an investor would want to use such a strategy. So when you buy an index fund or an ETF that holds foreign equities, you're taking on two different risks. The first one comes from simply owning stocks themselves, which of course can go up and down in price. And the second risk comes from the currency in which the stocks are denominated. So if you hold U.S. stocks and the U.S. dollar rises in value relative to the loonie, you get a boost in your returns. And on the flip side, if the loonie rises and the U.S. dollar falls, as it did between May and September of this year, your returns are going to suffer. Now, over the long term, these ups and downs are likely to cancel each other out, but sometimes the trends can last many years. The most dramatic example of this comes from early 2002 until late 2007, when the Canadian dollar soared, it started at 62 cents U.S. and rose to almost a dollar and nine cents where it peaked. Now, U.S. stocks actually did quite well during that period, but if you measured your returns in Canadian dollars, as most of us do, you were completely punished by that decline in the U.S. dollar over a period of six years. 
Now, currency hedging is designed to remove the effect of fluctuating exchange rates. So mutual funds and ETFs who use the strategy do so by purchasing contracts called currency forwards. Now, without getting too technical, the idea here is simply that the value of the contract goes up when the foreign currency goes down and vice versa. And the net result is that the impact of the exchange rate gets washed out. So the only risk that remains comes from the stocks themselves. So if US stocks go up 8%, a currency hedged fund should give you that full 8% return, even if the US dollar tanks. And of course, if the US dollar rises sharply, you won't enjoy any of that benefit as you would if you used an index fund without currency hedging, but you would accept that trade-off. Now, all of the ETF providers offer you with a choice of currency hedged or unhedged versions of their US and international equity ETFs. But if you've looked at the model portfolios on my website, you'll notice that I recommend only the unhedged versions. Now, does that mean I'm making a call that the loonie is poised for a fall or that I'm bullish on the US dollar? Not at all. The recommendation is a long-term one. It has nothing to do with the current currency exchange rates or a forecast of how they might change in the upcoming months or years. The first reason that I advise against currency hedging is simply that it's not very precise. The forward contracts that I mentioned a minute ago are updated once a month, which means that they can't track daily fluctuations. So if moves in the exchange rate are large or swift, and they often are, then funds using currency hedging may not track their indexes very closely. And this is borne out in the performance. For example, during the three years ending September 30th, the US version of the iShares S&P 500 index ETF returned 10.76% annually in US dollars. Now, one would expect that a currency hedged ETF that tracked the same index would have a very similar return. But in fact, both the iShares and Vanguard versions delivered 9.95% annually over that period. So that's a difference of 81 basis points a year. Now, some of that difference is no doubt the result of higher fees and withholding taxes on the dividends, but not all of it. And over time, a tracking error of even 30 or 40 basis points a year will erode your returns. The second reason to avoid currency hedging, in my opinion, is that it can actually increase the volatility of a portfolio. And that's why I think it's misleading when people talk about hedging eliminating currency risk, because that implies that non-hedged ETFs are more risky. But in fact, the opposite is true. Being exposed to multiple currencies, especially having exposure to the US dollar in a global equity portfolio, can actually lower your volatility. And that is because the US dollar is considered a safe haven by many investors. So when the stock market crashes, uh, they will often buy up US dollars and US bonds, which drives up the value. And that actually reduces the losses in your portfolio. Now, having said all of that, if you decide that you want to build a globally diversified portfolio with currency hedged ETFs, I don't think that's a disaster. But if you do it, I really urge you to stick to your plan over the long term. It's very tempting to want to move back and forth between the two strategies based on the current exchange rate. Some investors have even asked me about, say, using currency hedged ETFs when the Canadian dollar is near the low end of its historical range, and then switching to unhedged ETFs after it has risen by some target amount. But like any other kind of timing strategy, this is fraught with problems. It's no different from trying to change your bond exposure based on where you think interest rates are headed. Really what it does is it just puts you into a cycle of guessing games. And if you're switching back and forth between ETFs and a non-registered account, you may find that taxes eat up your gains even when you guess right.
So here is just another example of making peace with the fact that a long-term strategy is going to, with 100% certainty, have periods where it underperforms. So rather than trying to avoid short-term losses altogether, just accept that they're going to occur, try to stay focused on the bigger picture, and stick to your strategy with discipline. And if it makes you feel any better, when the US dollar falls, you can always use it as an excuse to do a little cross-border shopping. I hope that answers your question, Abe. If you've got an investing question for Dan, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com and he may answer it on an upcoming podcast. That's all for this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes, which really does help attract more listeners to the show. Thanks as always to the folks who make this happen, Nick Jaworski, Tara Hunt, Nicole Pomeroy, Amanda DL, and all my colleagues at PWL Capital. Thanks, we'll see you next time.